This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. When a song's being created, chances are that there is a collaboration of some kind. The words, the melody, whatever it might be. But the Justice Department is apparently concerned about this area and have performed a review of the music publishing industry regarding the consent decree it has established with both ASCAP and BMI. The DOJ is considering whether artists would be able to remove part of their song creation lists in order to do potentially their own licensing deals with one of the other services instead of having to have their entire list tied to just one service. And as you can imagine, the outcome could have big dollars changing hands. To take a look at this, we're joined here in the studio by Lawrence Gelbert, who is a lecturer here at the Wharton School. He's also a music producer and a 1991 uh, Wharton grad. And then joining us on the phone is David Israelite, who's the president and CEO of the National Music Publishers Association. Lawrence, great to have you in the studio. Thank you very much for coming in. My pleasure. Thank you. David, great to have you on the phone. Thank you for calling in. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, as we kind of said from the outset, just kind of, Lawrence, set kind of the backdrop as to how this how this decree kind of came into play and why the DOJ is is looking to make this change. So the first, let's start with copyright. So when you're part of a team that writes a song or maybe you're the sole songwriter, you initially have a set of copyrights and there are multiple rights. One is to perform, have the song performed on the radio, uh, Earth Bays or uh, other. There's mechanical license rights. So you own the right to say you can make a physical copy like a CD or an LP and sell it. You also have sync license, so you have the right as the copyright owner to give someone who's making a film or a motion picture access to use your song legally in conjunction with that uh, picture. There are also grand rights for theatrical uh, performances and print rights. So this copyright that you own is a set of rights, one of which is the right for performing rights organizations like ASCAP, BMI and CSAC, and they collect money, for example, from terrestrial radio. Mm-hmm. And so the, uh, that's their focus, and they have strength in numbers. ASCAP has almost a half a million uh, members, and BMI is quite large as well. So uh, how about if I pass it off and we can have a conversation here? Uh, talk about this particular right and what's going on with the DOJ. Yeah, uh, David, exactly what happened that that the the Department of Justice really is looking to try and make this type of a change? Sure. So for people that aren't intimately familiar with the music industry, um, you have to take a step back and understand what we're talking about. When you listen to music on the radio, like Sirius XM, there are two completely different rights that are involved. Mm -hmm. When a songwriter writes a song, that song has a copyright. When an artist records the song, that recording has a different copyright. What we're talking about here are just the songwriters. Mm -hmm. Many times they're also artists themselves. So, for example, like when a Taylor Swift writes her own music, she's both the songwriter and the artist. But you have lots of other instances where the songwriters are different than the artists, and they're only making their living through the exploitation of the copyright as a songwriter. Now, the public performance of these songs, um, as Lawrence was talking about, is a right 
that is not regulated by law. However, in 1941, two private companies, ASCAP and BMI, who are in the business of licensing these rights on behalf of songwriters mm-hmm. and collecting the money, they were put under a consent decree by the Department of Justice because at that time in 1941, it was thought that these two private companies had too much market concentration. Mm-hmm. And they were licensing these songs to the fledgling broadcast industry. And so the Justice Department thought that they needed to be regulated. Well, fast forward to today, and those same consent decrees still govern these two private companies, ASCAP and BMI. And what we're talking about are changes to these consent decrees that would allow songwriters and their representatives, which are usually known as music publishers, to pull their music out of ASCAP and BMI so that they could license it directly or through a different organization to the people that want to use the songs. And that's what we're talking about today. And, and this would have potentially, I guess, in most cases, ASCAP and BMI are, are competing against one another and certainly would be on different sides of the fence. But in this case, they they would seemingly be on the, on the same side, correct? Yes. In fact, Pretty much everyone who represents songwriters or music publishers or these performance rights organizations, as they're known, um, want these types of changes. There are two other organizations. Um, Lawrence mentioned one called CSAC, and there's a fourth that was started by Irving Azoff called Global Music Rights. Those two companies, they don't operate under consent decrees. Mm -hmm. They're in a total free market, and so when Sirius XM, for example, wants to play the music that they represent, they have to go and negotiate with them over the value of the songs that they represent. In the case of ASCAP and BMI, because of the way that these 1941 consent decrees work, there's no real negotiation. If someone wants to use the songs in the ASCAP repertoire or the BMI repertoire, under the consent decree, all they have to do is ask. And from the moment that they ask, they now have a right to use the songs and if you can't agree on a price, and of course, as, as your listeners will well know, when you're in a negotiation, if you don't have the leverage to say no, that negotiation takes a very different path. Sure. You then go to a single federal judge in the Southern District of New York. You have a federal trial. It usually takes several years and many millions of dollars. And at the end of that trial, that judge will dictate how much the songs are worth to ASCAP and then a different judge for BMI. The result of that process has been that the value of songs, the value of songwriters, has been just devastated. Mm -hmm. And they're not getting paid anything near what would be considered free market rates or fair market value for what they create. And so these changes to the consent decrees that are being sought is an effort to really get the songs back into a marketplace so that they would be valued appropriately. So the artists themselves, the, 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 the people that are creating the music, they would like to see that be more of a true free market where they could be able to maximize the, 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 the revenue that they could potentially get from these songs, correct? Oh, absolutely. I'll just give you one example. If you take a, you take a company like a, a Pandora, which is mm-hmm. a digital radio company, um, the artist side of the equation with record labels, they're getting about 50% of the revenue that's generated by Pandora. But if you look on the songwriter side, um, because of these consent decrees, the last two trials that just happened for ASCAP and BMI, the songwriters were getting less than 5% of the revenue. Now, in every other country in the world, the songwriters are getting as much as the artists for radio models. 
But in this country, because of these unique consent decrees, you ended up with a division where the artist side and the record label side was getting up to 10 times more than the songwriter because the songwriters were being governed by these consent decrees. And so that's just one example of just how harmful these consent decrees have been to songwriters. Do you think the possibility of these dissent, uh, these consent decrees uh, being uh, significantly changed is there at this point? Well, the Justice Department, I think, recognized that there were a lot of problems, and they started a process last August where they started looking at these consent decrees. You know, these two consent decrees, which came in during World War II, they haven't been changed since the invention of the iPhone, for example. Um, And when they were designed to protect the fledgling broadcast industry, if you look at today, what's happening is that you have companies like Google, Amazon, Apple, that are the ones being benefited by the regulation of songwriters, that somehow that a Google needs protection against the massive power of songwriters. It's just ridiculous. And so there's a process going on right now at the Justice Department to change those consent decrees. But as you can imagine, everybody who pays songwriters doesn't want to see a change because they are benefiting from these consent decrees where you can't say no and you end up going to a single federal judge to set a price. And so I'm hopeful that there will be changes, mm-hmm. but it is a very tough environment when you're fighting against pretty much everybody from broadcasters to satellite radio to digital music companies that all enjoy paying songwriters less than they would have to in a free market. <laughs> Lawrence, do you think that the changes are possible? I think they are, but there are a lot of entrenched uh, organizations that would like to stay, have these stay the way that they are. Sure. And as it turns out, um, in particular, the life of a songwriter who is not famous and doesn't have big records is very different from the life of the songwriter or of the performer for that matter. And what you find is that there are different feelings about how things should go depending on whether the artist is really successful or not. And to some extent with the large organizations, that strength is if you want to have uh, a song by a particular artist, you now have the access to all of the artists, sure. and it's more efficient to do that. It gives them more leverage in getting the money for the songwriters uh, across the board. Now, the large songwriting, the very successful songwriter or performer in the music industry in general has power, and so they might want to be able to make their own deal separately right. instead of, quote, pulling along all these other small artists who haven't had any big hits like they have. So what you find is what's uh, good for the goose might not be good for the gander. Right. And so, uh, David, you want to uh, weigh in on that as someone who worked well, in publishing? Sure. Uh, and, and I'll just mention, I worked at EMI pub- Music Publishing for a short time, and one of the things I realized is, yes, they have over a million songs in copyright, yeah. but you can't push a million songs to movies and, sure. and so forth. Exactly. And so what happens is, and this happens in almost any business or in the arts, that that top percentage that is very successful uh, has a different set of uh, vision of what is good sure. than the one who is being brought along. And so the opinion of whether this is a good change or not depends on basically what side you're on in terms of successful and small. So, Dave, could you talk about that a little bit? Sure, and I think it's a good point. There's no question that the more successful um, songwriters um, are earning more and they have more leverage. But what we're talking about here is really how much songs in general are worth. And so there are a lot of issues where there may be divisions between kind of the middle class of songwriters and the very top, but not on this issue. Because on this issue, what we're talking about is, do you have the ability to negotiate the value at all? 
Yeah. And there very much is a rising tide lifts all boats, or in this case, all songwriters kind of an equation about this. And so, for example, as Lawrence mentioned, if a movie wants to use a song in their movie or a TV show or a commercial, that's known as a synchronization. It's not governed by the consent decree. Mm -hmm. You have to go to the songwriter, you have to negotiate the value, and they can say no. But in the case of a public performance, like what's used on the radio, you don't have that situation. You have these consent decrees. And there's no question that it's more efficient if you can make everyone have to license through these organizations. But that really isn't what should drive the policy. Um, you know, it would be more efficient if I could just walk onto a car lot and just take any car I wanted. Right. Um, <laughs> there's a property right involved here. There's a, uh, you know, these songwriters make their living off writing songs, and they ought to be valued appropriately. Um, it's interesting, in 1979, the Justice Department adopted a rule that said that every new consent decree should sunset in 10 years because it was considered bad public policy right. to have open-ended consent decrees that never end. Unfortunately, they didn't apply that rule retroactively. And so you now have these consent decrees from, again, 1941 that are regulating how we do business today with giant technology companies like Google and Apple and Spotify and Pandora. And it really has flipped the power balance. Um, you know, the power is already on the side of these large digital companies that control the distribution. You take away the right to even negotiate the value of the songs, and you end up with a situation where, in some estimates, um, we've lost about 75% of our working songwriters because they simply can't make a living doing what they do. And that's really unfortunate because one of the things that America is really good at is our creative industries, and the rest of the world covets American music. And yet you've got these songwriters where it used to be, if you had a hit song, that might be enough to carry you for years paying yeah. bills. Yeah. Um, but today it's no longer the case. And you know, part of the reason is that consumers generally don't want to own copies of music anymore. If you talk to anyone under 30, for example, uh, it's very unlikely that they buy copies of music like a record or a CD or even a download. They want the streaming models, the access models. They go to YouTube, they go to Spotify, they go to Pandora. And those models, because of these consent decrees, don't compensate the creators in the same way, and the economics of the music industry have just been devastated. And that's why it's so important that these consent decrees change with the times and that companies like a Google have to pay the fair value of what the songs are that they're using. Well, I'm a little surprised, and, and just from the from the technological standpoint, with all the changes we've had technologically, even in the last 20 years, the fact that there was no change, uh, no changes made to this. It, it, it's really incredible, um, and it's something that, again, I think all songwriters are are unified on this point, as are the organizations that represent them, is that everyone would be better off if we were in an environment um, where you could negotiate the value of your property rights. In fact, if you go back 20, 25 years, the music business, and that included selling of physical CDs and copies of music uh, mechanically created, that was up around, we were up around 14 billion or so. Yeah. That same market today would be about 4 billion. Yeah, yeah. So there's, there's certainly a need, and, and you've seen that in the recording industry, with the recording studios as technology has changed, and all of these changes have made it more easier and less expensive for artists to create songs, but the value that they're getting back from those songs, as Dave points out, is woefully inadequate to support most songwriters. But oh, and Lawrence is exactly right, because one of the things that's happened with artists 
is that as people are buying fewer copies of their recordings, they're yep. having to tour more. And yep. that's become the primary source of income for an artist is to go on tour and sell tickets. And merchandise and, as well. And merchandise. T-shirts and, and so forth. As well. If you're a songwriter that's not also a recording artist, you don't have that path to try to compensate for the loss of your income. Which which also ties into well, why we've seen the, the, the growth in the music industry of the stadium tour from a variety of different artists. It, it, it obviously, for some of them, they have to be able to be tied to a, a concert tour that's you know filling up a, a football stadium of 70000 to make the kind of money that they want instead of going to the, the smaller hockey and basketball arenas when you're only getting about 18000 There's no question about it. Um, and, and again, for the songwriting community, um, many of whom aren't artists themselves, this isn't even an option for them, which is why so many of them either have stopped writing full-time because yeah. they can't make a living doing it, or they're struggling. Um, you know, not everyone should be able to make it as a songwriter, but if you're writing hit songs, if you're writing songs that people covet, like any other industry, you ought to be compensated appropriately. You know, if you go to a, a digital store to buy content, like a Apple iTunes or a Google Play Store or Amazon, and you can get all this great digital content from movies to books to TV shows to magazines to video games. All of that property is negotiated in a free market. The only thing where the government comes in and sets the price is on the songwriter. And the reason is because of an antiquated, outdated viewpoint from World War II. And that's why it's just such an obscene situation. Could you see a, a time because of uh, of the the setup that is there now, if there are changes made, where these deals that songwriters make would be could be potentially with the artists themselves in terms of the the value of the of the particular song, especially if you're talking about somebody that gets linked to a specific artist. Let's just say, as you brought up, Taylor Swift. If Taylor Swift has two or three songwriters that are basically providing all of that content. Can a deal be made that way, maybe in the future? Sure, and, and, and Taylor's a great example, because while, while Taylor's doing just fine, she also cares quite a bit about the profession of songwriting. Exactly. She's been a very yep. vocal advocate for all songwriters. So, for example, if you go to Spotify today, you will not find Taylor Swift's music yep. on Spotify. And the reason why it's important people understand this is that because on Spotify, um, there's both a free tier, where you don't have to pay anything, but you have to put up with advertisements, or there's a paid tier. And Taylor felt strongly that her music has value, and she only wants it available on the paid tier. Well, Spotify wasn't willing to do that. Now, Taylor Swift was able to withdraw her music as an artist. But as a songwriter, she had no rights. She could not have taken her music off of Spotify as a songwriter because of these consent decrees. And so you, you look at other creators out there that don't have the name recognition of a Taylor Swift, and they don't have the ability to make these kinds of statements. Right. But... The consent decrees are preventing the entire industry from being part of the conversation over what should the future look like. There's a big debate about whether free tiers are good or bad. In fact, even the CEO of Pandora wrote an op-ed recently that said for radio models, he thought that free was okay, but for interactive streaming models, where they're more like a jukebox where you can choose what you listen to, that people ought to pay. And that's, that's how Apple does it, for example. Sure. Well, so far, Spotify has decided they don't want to do it that way. But the writers, because of the consent decrees, they don't get to say yes or no. Their music is going to be on Spotify whether they like it or not. And I just think that that's a role the federal government shouldn't be playing when it comes to property rights. Well, it ought to be the decision of the people who create the property. I, I got to be honest, you know, working where I work, 
the pay model's okay. Yeah, but that but but that's the, that's just me because of where I work. But I and there I, should but, be competition, right? Exactly right. XM can compete with Pandora. They can compete with Ex- anyone else. Exactly right. And the market will filter it all out. I believe in free markets. Unfortunately, the consent decrees take it out of the free market. Yep. And the songwriters who actually are creating the music have no voice then. So what is the time frame then on on this review that the DOJ has done or is still finishing up on? And when can we kind of expect to see some sort of a decision made on a possible change to these consent decrees? Well, this process has been going on now for over a year and a half. Um, and uh, I think we're close to a point of knowing what the Department of Justice wants to do. Um, there are meetings going on in the next couple of weeks, in fact, over these questions. So I'm hopeful that um, sometime um, before the summer we'll have some indication of where this is going. Um, Congress could also choose to get involved in this. In this oh, oh, please don't. Area. <laughs> please don't. <laughs> they don't so, need to get involved in this. I'm certainly hopeful <laughs> that the Justice Department would fix this on their own, but uh, that's always uh, a route it could take. And then, you know, you have other much more radical kind of things being talked about. Um, as I mentioned, um, the only reason that ASCAP and BMI are regulated is because of these private companies um, and what happened in 1941. The yeah. reason why you have other competitors that are popping up is because they get to play under different rules. And that's not really fair to ASCAP and BMI. So um, I, I think it's a very fluid situation, and it's something to watch. So one, one question I have for you, David. Uh, is there a political motivation to chart from some uh, areas to try to keep this uh, the way it is until there's election and a new president? Um, I think that there are, it's a great question. I think there are many people that believe that um, there would be more friendly ears at the Justice Department, potentially under a different administration. Right. But um, this has been a process that's been going on for some time. Um, it's being handled right now by the antitrust division of the Justice Department, which is mostly populated with career attorneys. And the hope is, is that this isn't a political matter, that this should be analyzed on the merits of the law, and that common sense should dictate that um, there's no reason to be regulating songwriters because of their market power against a company like a Google or a Pandora that has 90% of the Internet radio market. Um, and so, you know, it's possible that could lead into the next administration, but... I think that uh, we'll have to see how this current process plays out. David, you're talking about a very interesting concept there. The fact that common sense and Washington, D.C. are brought together. <laughs> and, and that doesn't happen very often. 844 Wharton is the number if you'd like to jump in and ask a question of our guest, uh, David Israelite, who's the president and CEO of the National Music Publishers Association. Also, uh, Lawrence Gelbert, who is a uh, lecturer here at Wharton and also a music producer as well. Jeff is in Chicago. Uh, Jeff, welcome to the show. Hi, guys. Thanks for taking my call. Thanks. Go ahead. Okay, my question is this. If you change the existing decree and you have an artist that wants to um, separate their rights or remove their rights from a service like Pandora, but then you have a performing artist that is okay with a, a service like Pandora, how do you resolve how do you resolve that conflict at that point between the artist wanting one thing and the writer being a separate person wanting something completely different? That, that's a great question, and it gets to the heart of what we're talking about, which is, as we mentioned at the very front end of the program, there are two completely separate and different copyrights involved in music. And so take the situation um, today um, where you have a consent decree. Let's say that you have a new service that wants to be like a Spotify, for example, that wants to launch, and the songwriter 
wants to use their music in that service, but the recording artist doesn't. Well, under the rules today, that company wouldn't get to use that song because they need permission from both owners of copyrights. If the songwriters are able to get out of the consent decrees, then the exact opposite would be true. If the recording artist wanted the song on the service, but the songwriter who wrote it didn't, then the song wouldn't be on the service. Now, I know that sounds scary. The truth is that very rarely happens because both the songwriter and the artist are in the business of trying to exploit their copyrights to make money. And so, for example, I would point you to the one area of the music industry where this is already the way it works, synchronizations. Anytime that you want music in a product that has video, like a TV show, a movie, a commercial, or even YouTube, you need the permission of both the recording artist and the songwriter. And for anyone who's been on YouTube recently knows you can pretty much find anything you want there, and it's been licensed. And so it's true. If you got out of the consent decree, you would need the permission of the songwriter, but almost in all cases, that's what's going to happen because they both are interested in licensing their music and getting paid. The difference would be the amount they get paid. The difference would be how the money is split up because once you have equal leverage, then, of course, the money gets evened out. So, for example, when a movie wants to use a song and they have to negotiate with both the artist and the songwriter, it is almost always the case the money is split 50-50 between the artist and the songwriter because they both could say no. If you look at a case today like a Spotify, it's split 6-1. to one. A Pandora, it's been <laughs> split 10-1. to one. So I think what yeah. you would see is just it would be balanced out more in terms of where the money went. But I don't think that you would see a lot of missing content on these services. Jeff, thanks very much for the call. 844-WHARTON is the number. If you'd like to jump in and ask a question, we're talking about uh, a little bit about the music industry and the consent decrees that are being looked at by the DOJ. 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. Derek is out in San Diego. Derek, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. Um, my question is, if all of this were to go through, how is this going to affect pricing for the, for the end consumer? And I'm going to hang up and uh, listen to the answer because I'm going to get into a cell phone dead zone here. Thank okay. You. Thanks, Derek. Um, so with regard to pricing, first of all, um, many of the services that would be affected are already free. Um, so, you know, you think about uh, broadcast radio, free. Pandora radio, free. Even Spotify has free elements to it. Um, and so I don't think it would obviously affect any of that. When it comes to paid models, um, it's, it's an interesting question. I don't know whether prices would go up or not. My guess is probably not. My guess is probably it would just be a different division of money among the players that are sharing the money. So, for example, with a Pandora service, they're currently keeping about 50% of their revenue, and they're spending about 50% of their revenue for content. Well, that's quite a large number to keep when you're just in the business of delivering someone else's property to them. So you might see it come out of Pandora's share, for example. Um, But even if, worst-case scenario, prices would go up, that just means that that's the value of what you're getting. And um, I don't think the government, especially the federal government, ought to be in the business of trying to set prices for consumers um, on on products that uh, are made by individuals that have property rights. And so I don't think prices would go up. But if they did, that would just be the natural result of how much what you're getting is worth. And that, to me, would be okay. 
How could they, how could they, David, realistically, the government determine the price? Because it's something that they, obviously they're not experienced in. Well, that's why they shouldn't be in the business of doing it. And so you go to a single federal judge, and for all of the ASCAP songwriters, and, and um, I think as Lawrence mentioned, you know, there could be half a million total members of ASCAP. Not all of them are actual writers, but, but for, for a very large percent of the American songwriting community, a single federal judge is going to say, this is how much your property is worth. I just decide. Yeah. You can't say no. There's no negotiation about it. This is what it's worth. And, um, you know, you look at our economy, and where else does that happen? It just really is, is such an unusual thing for uh, the government to step in and have a single federal judge set prices on a product. It doesn't happen in almost any other area where you have creators that create art. Ascap mentioned in that, uh, in that uh, filing that they actually also would like to see a change to uh, go to arbitration from court. And that it would take that some of these lawsuits have taken ten years. So, Jeez. To, can you imagine that? Yeah, and one of the one of the here's one one of the things that happens. So, let's say you're a new startup company and you want to be in the business of digital music. You go and you ask ASCAP for a license. You're now licensed. You then spend the next three or four years trying to get off the ground and make your company really successful, mm-hmm. like a Pandora or Spotify that's worth billions and billions of dollars. But let's say you fail. And after four years, you're not able to get off the ground. Well, guess what? Those songwriters whose songs have been used for those four years get nothing because there never will be a payment for them. Everyone else will be, have gotten paid all the way through the economic chain. So for that company, they'll have paid their lease, they'll pay their water bill, they'll even pay the record label. Yeah. But the songwriter will get nothing because it takes that long to get to the federal judge to set the price in the first place. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.